here, and thanks again for tuning in for another edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel, where we talk about everything and anything cannabis, hemp-related, to help you make a better decision for you and your family when you're trying to navigate this space in your state or in your local municipality when it comes to buying, buying products that you think might help your family. So that's why I've really even done this, this podcast, and I'm glad you're tuning in today. We have a very special guest. He's the founder of Hi New York one of the world's largest cannabis meetup communities. He's also the author of the book, The Cannabis Book, How to Succeed in Weed, According to 50 Industry Insiders, and The Entrepreneur's Guide to Cannabis. His TED Talks invite people to think differently about cannabis. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about the one and only Mr. Michael Zaitsev. Thanks so much for being here today, sir. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit. About first off, your entree into the cannabis space to begin with, you went from working at JP Morgan to Google and now in cannabis. As I explain this to me, yeah, uh, much to my mother's dismay, she used to be able <laughs> to brag that her son worked at Google and then she had to, you know, reluctantly tell people, I'm not sure what he's working on these days. <laughs> <laughs> well, she should be able to brag about the fact that you're working in an industry that's uh, one of the burgeoning industries in the world. Well, I, I think now she's come around, although she gotcha. still she still won't try it, right. even though you know that's okay. That's okay. That's, it's that's not for okay. everyone. As long as as long as she doesn't mind other people trying, it's okay. <laughs> that's right. So, um, you know, I I like to say it was my destiny to get into cannabis. It was completely unplanned. Uh, when I was working at Google and living in San Francisco, I had a freak accident where you know one day I was going to enjoy some cannabis in my apartment. And I went to open my living room window because I didn't want to stink up the place. My roommates were non-consumers. Mm -hmm. I was trying to be a nice guy. And I go to open the window and it, it jammed up and shattered Holy when I was moly. pushing it. So I didn't realize anything had happened to me until I look down. I see like a chunk of my arm is hanging out. Holy moly. Blood is shooting across the room. I'm freaking out. Luckily, I had a friend with me. He called 911. To make a long story short, I had to get emergency surgery, got my arm fixed up, and for several months I was on disability. I couldn't work, couldn't really take care of myself. Mm -hmm. And so I like to joke that that forced my hand and forced me to move back to New York City where my family was so they could care for me. And I was 24 years old at the time. Um, I recovered eventually mm -hmm. and went back to work, got a new job, went to a tech startup and thought, all right, I'll work here for a few years and then eventually I can become an entrepreneur like I've always wanted to. Fast forward six months, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, what the hell am I doing with my life? <laughs> like, what am I doing? I'm not learning. I'm not excited to be here. I'm dreading my day. And after this accident, it really showed me that I don't have time to wait four years for you know this company to exit and then for me to advance in my career, blah, blah, blah. And, and so I said, all right, I'm going to go follow my dream and be an entrepreneur and try it out. I've got nothing to lose. I'm young. I'm alive. Why not? But being in the tech business, following the dream, you would think that that would be a startup of a tech company, not a cannabis company. What made you think about cannabis as your startup? Yeah. So actually, I, I, I went neither. First, mm -hmm. I, I decided I was going to become a coach and do life coaching. Okay because I had loved working with people 
and I love personal development. I, I used to read self-help books for fun. I still do. And I thought, here's a simple solopreneur business that I could start as a first business. And I think I, I have a decent chance at success here. Mm -hmm. And so I got certified, got trained, started doing that. And part of my business development was to go to all these different events happening around New York City to meet tech and finance people gotcha. who are miserable and, <laughs> and say, hey, I know what that's like. Sure. Are you looking to find more fulfillment in life or you know, something along those lines? And I, I was networking and just going to a bunch of events because I had all this free time now. Mm -hmm. And so a friend of mine invited me to a cannabis event and I had been a consumer, a pretty avid, enthusiastic consumer. Okay. Okay. And I, I was completely ignorant, didn't know anything, didn't know why it was illegal. How does it work in my body? You know, did, literally knew nothing about the plant except that I liked consuming it. So I go to this event and that was the first time I learned anything about it. And I met some OG activists who had been doing it for 20 plus years. I met some true medical patients, sure. which I didn't even know was a thing before. Right. I, I thought that was a joke. Right. Um, and then I also met people who had criminal records for consuming and were you know unfairly targeted. And it occurred to me that, hold on, there's something here. Right. And I had no, it opened my eyes that event. And also I had lived in California for several years and I saw the difference in where California was and where New York was. And I thought, wait a second, how is New York so far behind? You know, as a New Yorker, I thought New York's the capital of the world. We're number one in everything. And I saw that. Number one in everything except for cannabis. <laughs> exactly. Well, we might be number one in getting it wrong. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and just so you know, I mean, I've, I've literally been working in New York and have worked on the issue of cannabis regulations in New York for 20 years started wow. back in 2001 and uh, well, no, close to 20 years and um, yeah, I remember the first time I actually testified before the New York legislature was in maybe 2001 and a half um, talking back then about uh, them trying to implement a bill to help take the patients off the battlefield mm. and that's been my moniker since really day one I mean I get it that states have to figure out what they want to do from a an adult use standpoint, but while we're arguing the question, we know for a fact that cannabis has been considered a legitimate drug, even by our own government for the last 40 plus years. And so therefore, while all everybody's trying to figure out what to and what not to do, let's take the battle, the, the patients off the battlefield, you know, allow for medical distribution of and consumption on a medical basis to start. That's what I've been advocating for for 20 years now. And I want to thank you for that because I know you've been doing this work for a long time sure. and have been a champion for especially medical cannabis education. Sure. I think that's unfortunately gets left behind as... Even now, especially now, right yeah. now today, it's being left behind where at the end of the day, that's going to be what saves this industry. Mm. I don't think anybody in this industry even really recognizes and understands. I mean, not that I'm trying to, to take away from what we're talking about, but at the end of the day, yes, you know, I, I agree with the adult use, and but I'm also a believer that anybody who turns to cannabis is turning to cannabis because of an underlying medical reason anyway. Mm. They may not even recognize that for what it is. You know, to say, I do it because it helps me sleep. Ah, medical reason. 
right. to say I do it because it helps, you know, reduce some of my anxiety. Uh, medical reason, you know, I do it because it just makes me feel better. Well, you know, that glass of wine that was recommended to you by your doctor about eight years ago, once a day, was also for medical purposes. So at the end of the day, from my perspective, I think you know, cannabis is a is a is a holistic, over the counter, you know, medical product before it becomes any other form of product, but go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I, just to respond to that. I agree. And I think there's no such thing as recreational use of cannabis. Right. I think it's either medical, spiritual, or reckless. Yeah, there you go. And I, I think, unfortunately, most people don't have that awareness yet, but, uh, you know, there's a huge need for education still. And that, that was really kind of why I got involved was when I went to this event and got my first dose of cannabis education, right? it blew my mind. And it occurred to me, you know, after this accident I had, I was looking for meaning and looking for a purpose for my professional life. Mm -hmm. And I knew immediately this was it. When I, when I discovered some basic fact about cannabis and when I, first I got angry. I, I was like, how come I didn't know this? How come right. no one, all these people who I've enjoyed cannabis with no one has mentioned this ever once. Right. I started thinking about it. I realized, wait a second, they don't know. And then that was kind of the light bulb moment for me where I said, okay, this is happening. You know, I saw it in California where there were dispensaries and, you know, it was more socially acceptable. And I realized New York is behind on this and the world is behind on mm -hmm. this. This is happening. And here's an opportunity for me to get in on something that I know is going to be massive from the early stages. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from that point on, I, I started organizing events. Okay. And I, I realized, here's a good way for me to not only educate myself, but to educate other people. Sure. And also, it was clear to me that there was no community here, because people were afraid to get together. And they were afraid to be public about, you know, either using cannabis or being in favor of cannabis or supporting it. Mm -hmm. People were I remember in the early days, people would say, well, am I going to get on a list if I buy a ticket to your event? <laughs> what if my boss sees? Right. I go, if your boss sees, then they're probably, probably going there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's at the event. <laughs> exactly. Enjoying the event. Right. Exactly. I, you know, luckily, a lot has changed in the last few years where I think, you know, now there's an event almost every day in New York and people are, you know, less fearful to to claim the cannabis part of their life. Sure, yeah. sure. Well, let's back up again. Let's go back to that party. So you're at the party and you got an education, a quick dose, fire hose education. Yep. And uh, walked out of there and said, you know what I want to do? I want to do what? <laughs> That's a great question. I want to smoke some weed when I got out of there. <laughs> sure. But, but okay. um, you know, I, I said... I want to make a difference in this world and I want to give back to the cannabis plant. This plant has done so much for me on a personal level and I've been a free rider and that didn't sit well with me. So I thought I need to do something that's good for this community and good for this plant. And I saw an opportunity to enter a new market. And as an entrepreneur, I thought, wow, when is when do you ever have the chance to get in on a massive industry from the beginning? Right. And so that was exciting for me. And honestly, I didn't know. Sometimes I still don't know what I want to do in this industry. Right. And I know that there's an opportunity to contribute and to educate people and to empower others. Mm -hmm. So actually, you know what? 
what now that I'm remembering a little more, <coughs> what I wanted to do was empower other people to have that moment that I had. That aha moment. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, wait a second, there's much more to this. And beyond that, I can make a difference here. Because for me, I never cared about government, politics, science, any of those things. Cannabis was a gateway into all of those areas for me and opened up my world to so much. And and I have seen that transition and transformation happen for so many other people since I've started doing this work. And I would say that's really, that's the core of it for me. So you said, okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave here and start an event type of a company that gives people these same experiences? You know, for me, it was about building a community and creating leaders mm-hmm. because I, I realized that there's an uphill battle here and we need leaders. And the way to create leaders is to show people, first of all, there's a community that needs service. Right. And so my first step was I have to get people together, educate them and have them see that they're not alone here, mm-hmm. that there's other people like them who are passionate, who care about this, who want to be involved and most of them didn't know that there was an, even an opportunity to do that. So when you first started putting, I mean, what did you do? You went up online and said, hey, I'm holding an event on Saturday, you know, blah, 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 with this date at this location, just to talk about cannabis? What did you do? Basically that, yeah. I yeah. So I used to be a salesperson at Google. So what I started doing was in an effort to educate myself, started reading everything I could about cannabis and then started cold emailing anyone who I saw in the news who seemed credible. And would just start reaching out to people and say, hey, I'm trying to bring you to New York or bring education to New York. Will you talk to me for five minutes? Mm-hmm. And I was surprised by how many people embraced me and were willing to, to share their information. And, you know, I, I suspect they recognized my passion and were, you know, no one else was calling them to come do that in New sure, York at sure. that time. So I think they were glad to answer the call. You say they were coming to New York to educate you or coming to New York to participate in your events? So uh, both, One of both. Okay. <laughs> both at the same time. And, you know, for me, it became clear that, again, I wasn't the only one who was hungry for this education. So, you know, I went on Meetup and started mm-hmm. advertising, hey, we're going to have a cannabis event. We're bringing in so-and-so from, you know, I remember one of the first events I did, Cy Scott from Leafly, the co-founder of Leafly, mm-hmm. and now the co-founder of Headset. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he flew in and gave a talk about what it was like to start a tech company in the industry. Wow. This was 2014, end of 2014. And, you know, we packed the room. And again, it was, uh, those early days were really magical because, Back then, it was so new to the people attending sure. that I, I saw so many people having that experience that I had. And people would come up to me after and say, you just changed my life because now I believe that I, I can work in the cannabis world, that there's something I can do with cannabis. I love cannabis and I've always been you know, hiding that. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's a lot of internalized shame and internalized stigma for cannabis consumers that's going to take some time to undo. And, and I think part of what these events have done and continue to do is normalize being a cannabis person. Is that what you mean when you say you want to try to convince in your TED talk, you talk about, you know, making people think differently about cannabis. Is that the idea that you're, you're talking about right now? So a little bit, actually. So the TED talk was a different, 
intended for a different audience because the events were very much upfront for cannabis people and some people who had relationships with the plant already already got it whereas the ted talk was more for the other group which is you know the bigger group the mainstream that has no relationship to cannabis and what i've realized in the early days was that those people outnumber the cannabis community significantly and without their support without their involvement we don't have a chance and so my my inspiration for the ted talk was to convince those people hey you should care about this even if you don't consume it this is going to affect your life this is going to affect one of your loved ones and this is going to affect our whole society and if you're not being educated and active in this issue you're part of the problem. I didn't quite say it like that, (laughs) but, but that's my belief because Mm -hmm. if you're not, you know, if you're blissfully ignorant, like I once was, then, you know, you're letting people control what's, what's going on for you. And, you know, and when you say blissfully ignorant, I mean, that, that blissful ignorance is at multiple levels. I mean, people don't understand, you know, what, what the, and how we're affected by cannabis and how, how, we were genetically made to be affected by, you know, cannabinoids as an antagonist to our own endocannabinoid system. People don't understand that, but forget that for a second. People don't even understand that this is something that, you know, you've been made to feel guilty about mm-hmm. over your entire life, but by a government that has used your money to investigate, research, and secure its own patent. Understanding what the viable and what the, you know, efficaciousness is of the plant and having the nerve to write about that themselves in their own abstract of their application for a patent. So and this is something, and the fact that, you know, the U.S. and every single budget approved every single year for the last 40 plus years has funded research in marijuana, not only in the United States, but outside of the mm-hmm. United States. People don't even stop to recognize, wait a minute, back, yeah, 20 years ago, while they were saying, oh, no, there's no medical efficacy, 20 years before that, they were proving its medical efficacy and actually distributing marijuana themselves. You know, we live in a country that, you know, for 40 plus years, our government has distributed, you hear what I'm saying? Distributed cannabis to individuals in this country. And as a matter of fact, still do so today. The federal government distributes marijuana grown at the University of Mississippi. Now I think it's down to three patients that started out in that original program, but those three patients still get a canister a month from a government that says, I don't understand if it has any medical viability whatsoever. So when you talk about having to educate, I mean, we can go on for an hour just talking about everything not related to human beings and mammals having a system that was genetically built into the body to make cannabinoids an antagonist to our own neurosystem. You see what I mean? So Absolutely. it's it's a, when you say you're educating people in the, the uh, yeah I mean I I first of all I applaud you, thank you, but you know I mean I think that's still right now today the biggest issue facing this entire industry. It hasn't anything to do. I mean as much as you know we want to get the laws right, get the administrative you know, rulings right at every state, get some regulations put in place to help process, distribute, and provide efficacious medication. I think at the consumer education level, you just have to under- explain and, and answer the question, why? Mm. 
And that's question still not being answered. I, I go to dinners. I, I just did an interview on a television station a week ago, and a, a, an anchor looked at me like I was crazy when I said, yes, the U.S. government owns a patent on cannabis. Uh-huh. Really? Does that not frustrate you even oh, now? it's terrible. You said your first event was in 2014. Come yep. on now, it's 2020, right this minute. Six years later, we're still dealing with answering the basic question. It's, yeah, uh, it is frustrating. And, you know, just to go back to you talk about the hypocrisy of the government. One thing I mentioned in the book is, you know, America was built on hemp. If you go back to the founding fathers and all that, it was mandated to grow hemp. We are so silly, stupid, and, you know, like lemmings will follow any bull crap that we hear and run over a cliff, you know. It, it just it's it just shocks me even now today when you hear it out of somebody's mouth. Well, we just need to do some more research. Well, you know, I mean, we have done the research. Research has been done for over five thousand years, and you've nailed it, uh, Michael. You know, a lot of people don't understand that. You know, it, it's not that the government just required back in you know I guess the early eighteen hundreds, eighteen oh one to about eighteen sixteen. You know, you were considered un-American if you didn't grow hemp. Most people in this country don't understand that the entire revolutionary army was clothed in hemp. Every sail, every rope, every tent made at the revolutionary wartime was made with hemp. The majority of people who were alive here in this continent ate hemp every morning in a porridge because Mankind recognized back then that the hemp seed is one of the most protein-laden seeds on the planet. So everybody woke up in the morning every day of the week, grabbed a bowl of porridge. If they weren't, if they didn't live near a farm, they grab some eggs. But you know, more people were probably consuming and eating hemp than they were eating eggs and bacon. Yep, and that's but, my breakfast every morning: right. some oatmeal with hemp seeds, chia seeds. Absolutely, <laughs> people don't get it, but you know, and and then you, we can go on and on. I yep. mean, it was as recently as you know, nineteen forties that the federal government forced farmers in the United States to grow hemp during World War Two. Yep, absolutely. I mean, I don't know how stupid we are to believe that this is just something that should have been outlawed and banned. You know, they don't get the fact that you know two of the biggest lobbyists who were against hemp that helped to you know fund. You know, uh, uh, the the vilification and the the illegalization of, that's, a, that's not a real word, but, you know, making cannabis illegal, yeah. you know, were William Dow Randolph Hearst and Charles DuPont. Yep. You know, the textile king, right? You want to get get rid of competition and the paper king. Yep. Get rid of competition. And they helped to fund a guy who literally two years before he started battle was a supporter of Marijuana, not just hemp. I'm talking about, um, oh my goodness, uh, the, the person, Harry Anslinger. Anslinger himself. Anslinger, during Prohibition, who was a big prohibitionist who was against alcohol, literally used to do speeches and include in his speeches and talk about the fact that hemp or cannabis or marijuana, at the time called that right. way, was a viable option because it wasn't found to be as violent. Huh. And I, even I, talked about that. it. He didn't change his mind until he lost his daggone job. The second that they decided to go ahead and say, no, you know what? You can go. You can drink a little alcohol. Uh, I need some help. And then, of course, he, you know, dropped both knees for William Randall Hearst and, and DuPont and decided, yeah, as long as you're going to pay me, I'll vilify this. Right. 
Right. They couldn't figure out how to vilify it in a way that would be honest. So as long as he associated with those people, you know, darkies from below the border or the ones that lived here in the United States, you know, let's associate it with that and make people believe that it's, you know, this dangerous killer thing that we need to get rid of. And with no justification whatsoever, we filed, what is it, 1931, the Marijuana Tax Act, to ensure that we ban it. And then he worked for the next 30 years to ban it worldwide. People don't know that. Yeah, and One and guy. To me, that story demonstrates two very important things, one of which is core to my message in the book, which is one person can make a tremendous difference in this industry in this world. I've, right. I've seen it not only with my own story where I've been able to reach thousands of people, but also each of the people I interviewed in the book have had tremendous impact. And this industry is happening right now. This is being built right now. Cannabis will only go, will only be re-legalized once, I believe. And if we don't get it right right now, we're going to be in for a world of hurt and trouble and we well, can take a look at the industry right now that's <clears throat> in a world of hurt and trouble yep. you've got you know states that have passed legislation and i'm 100 for legislation i'm all 100 for administrative rules but i'm not 100 for administrative rules that make it so daunting that it helps to feed into a robust black market because mm-hmm. then that's how you get product in the marketplace that harms people right right that hurts people right because you don't regulate it with, with uh, uh, again, taking a patient off the battlefield. You regulate it with the idea of making money. Right. Absolutely. So you, you got every state trying to figure out, man, I heard that Colorado made a billion dollars already off of cannabis. I need to get me some of that billion dollars. I don't care what, what I'm selling. And people don't understand that the bigger picture is if you try to exploit this plant and use it for injustice, just like the story you told, mm-hmm. and that's part of you know the anger that fueled my getting into this work was we have this, this gift from the universe, this incredible natural resource that can do so much good for so many people and for the planet and animals and you know just this miraculous mm-hmm. plant. And instead, instead of getting utility out of it, we're actively using it to harm people. Right. And to destroy people's lives. And to me, this is the epitome of injustice. And I think what the corporate side of the industry or the more, I, I, sh- I shouldn't say the corporate side, the greedy side of this industry failed to appreciate is that this plant has its own consciousness. And if you try to exploit it and use it as a profit maximizer or whatever, any of these things in the long term, it's going to backfire and it's only going to create more harm and more damage. And that that's really my, my whole thing with this project, with this book is this isn't like an every other business and to treat this just as another commodity and to try to profit maximize isn't going to work. And that's been the problem in the last now because of this gold rush, the last four years, I think people have come to the table who could care less about the product itself or about its efficaciousness as a medicinal agent, they just see the green rush. You know, it's opportunity, you know, ching, 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 ching. And those who jumped in with the ching, ching in mind have started to realize that, you know, this is happening when, you know, their drawers get empty because they're emptying right now. People are turning away from the legal market and turning into the black market, but not only that. And part of that reason is because, you know, we put some 
you know, really daunting controls over things that were simple. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, seriously, I get the fact that everybody wants to get paid, but you don't have to get paid twice the price of the product. Right. And, you know, or, or, or set some fictitious, you know, bottom line for the amount, 40%, 60% tax on something that's supposed to be a medication. Right. They're, yeah, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. So what are some of the biggest conceptions you see in, about the cannabis culture? So I think, you know, I'm not sure if I believe there even is a cannabis culture. Yet. Yet. And why I say that is because cannabis transcends culture to me. You know, this plant is such an important part of human culture. If you go into the history sure. um, and if you look at the modern day or, or the more recent history, you know, there's people all over the world who have their own unique cannabis culture. For example, yes. people in India, people in Jamaica, people in the Emerald Triangle, people in the Netherlands, they all have a relationship with cannabis that's unique to their culture. Yes. And and my understanding is culture is formed by shared rituals, shared stories, and shared values. And up until pretty recently, in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, maybe less, it was dangerous to share cannabis stories or cannabis rituals or, or whatnot. So, and even still today, we have a very fragmented cannabis culture. That being said, I do believe there are certain cannabis values that are universal. Yeah, let, me, let, me, let me stop you just for half a second because I want to make sure all the listeners at home recognize I'm coming to you from New York. This is Manhattan. And yes, you do hear sirens in the background. They're not coming to bust. I, Michael, and yes, I did take a hit a couple seconds ago. You might have seen it or not. I don't know if you did, but I did. That's not cops coming up here to bust me. It's just that the background noise. I just got to say that because it's, you know, for a second I'm listening when you were speaking. It's like, as soon as you started saying that, the Canada's culture, all of a sudden the sirens started getting louder. They're not coming to bust us. So right. prohibitionist alarmists. Yeah, they, no they, don't, they don't like the truth. No, they don't like the truth <laughs> at all. But you know, I got to tell you now, see, some things I'm heartened by, some things I'm not heartened by. Mm-hmm. I, I never hardly discuss or I don't discuss often on the show the fact that, you know, I've had my own brand out now for a few years and that brand name is Lenative. And on my board of my cannabis company, which would be surprising to a lot of people, is the former head of the CIA. Jim Woolsey on, you know, one of the, you know, uh, uh, investing um, investors in my company is the former head of Pharma Worldwide, Congressman Billy Tozen, mm-hmm. uh, the former head of the DLA for the United States military, you know, uh, uh, former uh, Vice Admiral Ed Straw, uh, uh, Lindy Snyder, who, you know, runs the Snyder Foundation. They're not coming to bust me. <laughs> I started talking about real names and here it gets louder again. But still, these are people that that have come out of the woodwork and recognize because they know me and they understand that, you know, I, I got involved in cannabis and, and involved in literally going around and trying to help states write and work on legislation to pass, you know, viable legislation to provide, let doctors have a private conversation with their patients. But they've looked at me because of my personal use with cannabis has been based on, you know, my diagnosis with MS now almost 20 years ago. And my journey with MS that has been, you know, significantly impacted by my cannabis use. 
And that's broad spectrum, everything from smoking to eating to, you know, a broad spectrum cannabis, not just CBD, but, but, but you know, broader spectrum of the cannabinoids that are available. And I, I am positive there's no ifs, ands, or buts in my heart of hearts that this is what's helped impact, you know, the progression of my illness. It slowed it down for me. This is me talking. I'm not saying I did a double bond study on me, but I know that out of all the things that I do that a lot of people who have had similar you know, similar dates of diagnosis and similar symptoms to mine, I know what has happened to me. Wow, it must be something really heavy going on outside. Now all of a sudden we got the alien cops out there, right? I'm glad we're safe in here. Yeah. Yes, we are. <laughs> so, um, you know, I mean, I, I, I just think that attitudes are changing. But unfortunately, the industry has gotten so caught up in the B2B idea of how to make more money than how to ensure there's a demographic that even wants the product. Mm. And you do that by educating. Right. And I think before any of that even happens, before businesses come in and even think about how do I make a dime in this industry, they need to think about how do I undo the harm that was created through prohibition? Yes. Because if you don't have that consciousness about you of, thinking long-term and thinking bigger picture than just how do I sell this and make money? You're already missing the boat. You know, I, I, I have thought very hard at that if your approach to, to the whole issue is number one, again, you go back 5,000 years, you know, written about in, you know, the earlier cornucopias of, of medicine in the Chinese history. If you look at the multiple uses is, Throughout that entire period of time, that way, five, did I say five thousand years? Yes, I said five thousand years. Now this country's only been here for you know what three hundred, three hundred plus lads, just barely. It is ridiculous that we don't recognize the fact that there was you know though we think that our science is the only science that matters. Mm. Science was done around this world long before America was even a pipe dream, right? And you know. Cannabis has been used as a medicinal agent and as a recreational agent and as a coping agent throughout that entire 5,000-year period of time. Right. And as a sacred plant in, in religious rituals where people literally worshipped this plant for its power. Right. And, and it, you know, I could understand if it came and went every 300 years, but that's not what happened. It wasn't until, you know, a bunch of buttheads decided that they were smarter than the world and vilified this to the rest of the world and then forced through treaties to make the rest of the world buy in, which they are now buying out of. Right. Although it's coming slowly. I it is coming slowly, but, you know, come on. You got, what is it, uh, Colombia? You got uh, Spain. You have, um, you know, countries. That, uh, somebody told me recently, I think, is it, is it South Korea? Not South I can't remember. Um, you know, there are several countries that have signed, pulled out of the 1961 cannabis or hemp treaty mm. because they've recognized that, you know, you're not going to tell me what to do. Right. You know, and oh, by the way, I'm sick and tired of the fact that your pharma companies keep raising the price on everything they sell me. Mm. And we have something here that has been recognized as an agent. You look at go to places like in Israel where, you know, they know for a fact they've reduced the amount of you know, uh, prescription medication that 
most seniors take just by authorizing a senior the right to have cannabis as a geriatric drug. Wow, I did will. not know that. Oh, yes, absolutely. You turn 70 in, in Israel, you can go to one of maybe three different hospitals in Israel and pick up your, you got to pay for it, but you're going to pick up your ounce or eighth of cannabis because it's your 70th birthday. It's your birthday. It's your birthday. <laughs> no, I mean, I, but, I may retire there, there now. There you go. Well, there's a good <laughs> enough reason to do so. And, you know, I mean, I also got to remember that, you know, the U.S. government's probably funded about $100 million worth of research in Israel. Dr. Mishulam didn't get the cash that he needed to do all of his experiments from the Israeli mm-hmm. government, though he is a recent special out right now showing how he went about starting to investigate. But a lot of that research was funded after the initial tranche of research from his own university. That was research was funded by us, mm. the U.S., yeah. your taxpayer dollars, yep. not yours, but your mama's, you know, their dollars. We're going to pay for funding that we sent to Israel to validate the efficaciousness of a drug. And that some of that research is still going on now that we're not paying for, but they're going to get the advantage out of when they create drugs that they can turn around and then sell and stick up your booty in another way. Mm. It's, 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 it's just so ridiculous what we don't know because we don't want to know. Mm. And I think that's why the education part of this work is so tricky because mm-hmm. a lot of people are happy to just consume. Yep. Well, yeah, they're, but they're, yeah, you're right. There are a lot of people happy to, to just consume and a lot of people just say, eh, you know, it hasn't been my thing. Don't even recognize that when you say hasn't been my thing, it could be a thing today. Right. And, and that goes back to my whole approach with the mainstream audience where they have this attitude of that's not my issue. That's not my right. problem. And I think those people are really missing the the intersectional and institutional impact that cannabis has on everyone. Well, that's why you came up with your your top five tips to every cannabis entrepreneur should know if they want to succeed in this industry, right? That's right. why you came up with it. Why don't you tell us what those tips are? <laughs> well, number one, of course, is to go on Amazon.com and purchase the book Did because the book? you're going to need more than five tips if you want to mm-hmm. succeed in this industry. And I cover a lot of topics on, you know, the, the most common cannabis business mistakes, uh, the 11 characteristics of highly successful cannabis entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. and much more how this industry is unlike any other industry in the world. Um, so that would be my first piece of advice. Number two, I would say you have to, have to, have to get a cannabis education. If you don't understand the plant and the history and the science behind it, how could you stand a chance in this industry? And that doesn't mean that you have to go up and sign up for the local, you know, uh, Votech school or or local college classes being there. Though I'm I'm really happy to say that it's it's uh it's unbelievable that several universities now are stepping up to the plate and offering you know uh, advanced uh, degrees in cannabis and basic degrees in cannabis just to you know as as part of a national curriculum. Right. And I'm I'm really happy to see the universities are stepping up the plate. But you don't have to go to the university, folks. You can go up online right now, and if you Google cannabis, and just Google the endocannabinoid system, and yep. then read every single yep. article about the endocannabinoid system, and keep digging until you think you've been through all of them. I'm gonna guarantee you it's gonna take you more than the five minutes that you thought it was gonna take you. It's gonna take you probably the next three months because there's probably about twelve hundred to fourteen hundred 
published documents out there. There's probably a couple hundred peer-reviewed documents out there talking about the endocannabinoid system. That's just that part. But then we were sitting there talking about history. Well, Google that. Mm -hmm. And you start and just go back and look at a timeline for cannabis, and you'll be shocked at the timeline uh, that you'll see for first uh, writing about cannabis and and usages and and, and discussion. I, I, you'll be completely blown away. Um, you know, and then take a look at cannabis hemp itself. It'll take you probably three or four months to educate yourself on, well, really, what's the difference? If I really want to get smart about this, I have to really dig deep and find out why one is one and one is the other and why they all start off almost the same. Ooh, that's weird. One's one, one's the other, and they start off the same. That doesn't make sense, does it? Go look <laughs> it up, and it'll tell you. Give you some answers. So it's things like that that you're talking about. Absolutely, and I, I include in the book a list of maybe 20 or 30 books, resources, blogs, and sources of information to go get that education. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'll be the first to admit that I've, I've been studying this for about six years now. I'm still just a beginner. Dude, I've been studying this for 20 years and get blown away every other, right. every other day, a couple of weeks. You know, I mean, I, just this last week, uh, I had someone shared an article with me about the fact that, you know, again, and, and when you look at the science behind cannabis, or marijuana, first I want to tell you that there's something called, I did say already, the endocannabinoid system that's antagonized by cannabinoids in a plant. Well, that cannabinoids in that plant, if you listen to or read some of the Western research, they're going to tell you that we've discovered somewhere around 66, 67 cannabinoids. And if you read research outside of the United States, you're going to find out that they say that we've discovered probably around 168. So I don't know what that real number is yet, but you know I'm going to err on the side of the larger number because we're doing research and actually finding subsets of what we thought was a single cannabinoid now recognizing that maybe two or three. So I get it. But in the last week, you know, science has now identified another two cannabinoids. And that means that they discovered two and it's a variant, you know, it's called a THCP, yep. which is a chemical that, you know, you know, I've heard, no, you've heard of Delta 9 THC. You've heard of THCV. You've heard of THCA. Now there is a THC. P and a CBD P. So, you know, and well, oh, let me blow you out the door with this one because both THC, V, A, P, and CBD, B, P, all originally were CBG. Oh, no. What did he say? Yeah. So, again, you've got to go out and really try to get an education to understand. And, and what's the difference between CBG and THC and CBD? Well, read it. Right. Learn. Study it. Think about it. Ask questions. Go up online. Ask some hard questions, and you'll get some hard answers. But, again, that education is what you need to even think about, start thinking about before you even start thinking about getting into this as a business. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's remarkable that you've been studying this for 20 years. I've been studying this for six years. There's people who've been studying it their whole lives. Yes. And still every day we're discovering something new about this plant because there's still so much mystery and so much more to learn about it. That's right. Well, you know, we also then made it legal even the study of the plant right. for almost 70 years. So that's part of the reason why that stupidity happened. And that goes right into my next piece of advice, which is if you want to be an entrepreneur or, or investor in this industry, you have to be an activist or an advocate for the plant first, because the laws aren't going to change themselves. American institutions and many global institutions are decidedly anti-cannabis. And 
that's not going to just change overnight or by itself. It's going to take lots and lots of work. And without that happening, without healing and justice and repair happening, this industry won't exist. It's not going to survive because they're just going to bake in restrictions that are going to be unfriendly to producers, to consumers, and people will find other ways to you know, supply and demand cannabis as they have for many years. Um, yeah, so along those lines, I would say you have to remember that the plant and the people and the profit, those are, they have different levels of priority. You got to put the people, the patients especially, and then the planet and the plant above profit. And if yes. you don't have that fundamental approach in your business model or in everything you do in your cannabis consciousness, then you're not going to succeed in the long term or even in the short term, right. in my opinion. Yeah. And then you say, hold yourself to a higher standard. Yes. And I, I think because, again, cannabis is different. And for me, cannabis is, is a powerful tool for personal development and personal growth and empowerment. And it's a plant that provides healing and growth for humanity. I think this plant has sustained humanity. Without this plant, I don't think we, we might not be alive as a species. I, you know, there, there's, there's, I remember I, I did a visit to a, a, a farm in a grove in Israel. And um, I'll never forget, I was blown away because, you know, I'm on this farm and I'm uh, at the time that I was there. And this is, you know, let's go back almost 10 years ago, 10 years ago, I was down there, you know, looking around and, 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 and interacting with people about, you know, a lot of the information that we don't even know here. But I'm on a farm and I'm watching these guys who are growing and there. And at the time, there was probably, you know, less than a thousand people signed up to the entire country's medical marijuana program. And I'm watching, you know, guys at a farm who literally were harvesting that week I was out there and they're filling up the back of a Mack truck, you know, with these 20 pound bags of, you know, 30 pound bags of cannabis grind. Mm. that they're sealing in these bags. And they really like processing it outside and the, the dust and dirt didn't matter. They're just processing it. And I'm looking at the back of this truck and I was like, you know, there's less than a thousand people signed up, you know? And in the back of this truck, when you guys are done and you ship this out, there's going to be probably about four tons. I'm just saying, you know, I, I, I uh, you're a legal uh, farm and growing for the government for the government program, but you don't have enough people to consume all this. And one of the, the people who was running the farm said, "Well, Montel Detente works in different ways." And I thought to myself, "Hmm, I see. So <laughs> one group's lobbing bombs this way, but if I lob cannabis that way." Hmm, you don't see a lot of people walking outside having pot bar fights. I mean, that just don't happen. <laughs> no. you know, but they'll walk outside and have a beer fight in a minute. Oh, yeah. I see. So that tot works in many ways. I gotcha. Okay, I'm not saying nothing about that. I'm just, I was just asking. What, <laughs> what I ended up kind of saying. But, you know, I think that's where you nailed it. It's an opportunity where you say save the world. You know, it could have prohibited somebody from making that decision on one night that they would have made to 
lob something a little bit more powerful than the kind that they were lobbing. Wow, that's that's an amazing story. And I have I have one in the book where a veteran who I know who became an advocate, like so many, you know, I got to say the best advocates I know are all veterans. Okay. And so thank you for your service thank and you. for your advocacy. So I, I had this story that shocked me when this guy told me, um, you know, he, he had been a combat man and he told me a story of how he was fighting for custody of his son with his ex-wife didn't go his way and he had decided that he was gonna murder his ex-wife or his his baby mama or you know whatnot and you know he was ready to go he was he said i have nothing to live for if i can't see my son and you know he was depressed and clearly had some ptsd and you know was really had decided to do this violent unnecessary thing mm -hmm. he said on my way over there i stopped by um, you know, I think he was in Washington Heights. So I stopped by the park. I picked up some bud, smoked the joint. And then I, I looked outside and I said, wow, it's so beautiful out here. What a gorgeous day. And he said, you know what? I had another one. And then by the end of that afternoon, I had realized I had thought about it some more. And I decided I can't do this. This isn't the right thing. This is bad for my son. This is bad for me. This is definitely bad for my baby mama. And so I'm going to. I'm going to not do this. And, you know, he said he earnestly told me that story and said, this saved my life and my wife's or my ex-wife's life and my son's life just because it gave me a chance to pause right. and to reflect and have a different perspective. And, you know, I think one of the things people don't understand about this plant or don't talk about enough is everyone, I believe, I don't have the data on this, but I believe every adult human has PTSD in some form. You know, they've, they've had some trauma in their life. And this plant, from the researchers that I've spoken to and from the research I've done myself, is one of the only effective, you know, treatments or, or tools for healing people from PTSD. And I should back up and say that, you know, again, when I did my visit to Israel, this was now 10 years ago, and they had already implemented a program 12 years ago to actually start to study and see cannabis effect on PTSD mm. for some of their soldiers. This was 12 years ago, long before this became an idea that people wanted to accept with the fact that we know that, you know, certain cannabinoids have purely already been deeply investigated medical efficaciousness for various things from cancer to now PTSD to uh, uh, seizures we know that this has now been legitimately researched. But again, 12 years ago, before we were even talking about it, other countries would recognize that we're moving forward. Right. And and for the that reason that this plant has so much potential to heal and help people, I think is precisely why if you're in this industry or representing the plant or the community or the industry in any way, you have to have that higher standard for yourself and model and demonstrate integrity and also remember what this is all about, because if you don't have that approach to it, then it's definitely going to become another big pharma, big, big tobacco, big alcohol, big ag, whatever. We've already seen what they've tried to do, and we already know mm. what they're trying to do now. And that's trying to figure out some way to come up with some synthetic thing that's going to cost 150 times more than just the basic weed that grows in itself. Uh, and to try to replace the idea of you being able to figure out a way to medicate yourself. Remember, you know, at the turn of the century in the, 
you know, from 1800s to the 1900s, you know, there was a product uh, that people literally were able to, and they licensed to, but they grew themselves uh, in their front yard. They would process in their kitchen and consume. But then, unfortunately, a lot of people started winding up dead on their kitchen floor. Mm. And um, this was a, a substance drug that was not regulated until about 10 years ago. It was one of the only drugs that's not scheduled, but one of the deadliest things in America is sold at you know almost every CVS, every and I don't know CVS, but every local corner drugstore and uh, you know uh, a health store in the country. And what I'm talking about is aspirin. People don't understand that you know aspirin they discovered from the willow, the bark of a willow tree. So, you know, there were people that were boiling willow bark in their kitchens and ended up taking so much aspirin that they would bleed out, but they wouldn't know why, okay? Now, why I'm even discussing that is the fact that, you know, we have recognized the viability of plant-based medication as a nation and as a people. We didn't try to regulate aspirin other than made it illegal for you to produce it yourself, and which was a good thing at the time, but then we didn't regulate it after that, and it's not even a scheduled drug. But again, it is the most deadly drug that we have in medicine cabinets around the country. Hmm. You know, you know, because you know, you take a, a full bottle of aspirin, you know, you're going to be bleeding out on your bathroom floor within hours, and we know that. So, you know. Again, so okay, so what's the point I'm making? The point is that it's something that the Fed stepped in and regulated, but then didn't try to create a synthetic version of. Right. And, you know, when I think about synthetic cannabinoids or synthetic yeah. cannabis. Marinol doesn't work. I've tried it. Done it. Right. And I, I think about K2 and, you know, all right. the people here in New York where I forgot if it was last summer or two summers ago or whatever, right. where, you know, people thought that that was a viable substitute for cannabis and you know it, it goes back to the endocannabinoid system yeah. where and and driving people kind of insane you know from the reports that i that i had seen and it goes back to you know the endocannabinoid system that our bodies and all mammals are designed with you know we come with <laughs> endocannabinoid system standard feature every right. human animal and uh, produce our own cannabinoid, cannabinoids, which is uh, anandamide and uh, 2-AG. And so two really unbelievable chemicals that, you know, help to regulate our cellular homeostasis. We've known this now for fact. Right. But most people don't know it. Right. And even those who are aware of it, like I for myself can't say I know that much about how the endocannabinoid system works and engages with you know, my nervous system and the other regulatory systems of my body, because my, and again, maybe this is my incorrect in it. Well, not well-informed opinion, but I don't think the science and medicine community, like most doctors in that I've met don't know how these systems work either. They have not been teaching. They have not been teaching in the endocannabinoid system until you know, this lie about three years ago that you started, started to see it sprouting up in, in medical you know, schools across the country, and it should be taught even more. As a matter of fact, doctor, well, I should say two years ago, no, I'll back up for a second because, yes, I was correct, but a couple of doctors told me that they had uh, done a class on it back about eight, year, 
years ago, but it's only been the eight last eight years. If doctors don't even recognize this, then they don't recognize the viability and then wouldn't even think about trying to say, well, geez, guys, you have something here that's you know, less harmful, less side effects than anything else that we have. Why not take a look? Mm. And say, yeah, it begs the question, who's making these decisions? Because the regulators certainly don't have that education if the doctors don't, right? right? So who's actually making the decision about how you're allowed to interact with this plant and people who are as uh, you know ignorant as the former you know attorney general who and cannabis has not let be it a viable medicinal purpose shut up you know what i mean I, I, that's crazy okay i'm a, i don't want to run out of time and i ask i got a couple more questions but tell me a little bit about the cannabis media lab yeah the cannabis media lab we actually just went live today for taking applications to the to the Cannabis Media Lab, which is essentially a cannabis accelerator and training program for entrepreneurs in the tri-state area, uh, really small business, the grassroots level entrepreneurs. And the program is designed to equip those people with media skills and media training so they could, one, get their stories out there and actually be effective in the crowded marketplace, and two, so they could use you know, quality information and education to be socially responsible and to share that with their customers and communities, uh, Again, which again goes back for me to being an advocate, being an activist, and having that be a part of the business model. Got it. Let's talk, you know, before I run out of time, give people a website that they can go to, especially if they're listening in and around the New York area. What website can they go to to find out what you're doing, what events you have coming up for High New York? Yeah, sure. So if you're in the New York area or tri-state area, you could visit highny.com. That's H-I-G-H-N-Y.com. And we have an event coming up on uh, January 29th. It's going to be a 2020 Cannabis Investment Outlook panel. And, you know, all the events go up there. So you could visit highny.com. And if you want to get more information about me or the book or some of my work, you could visit michaelzeitsev.com or much easier if you go to hi-mikez.com, H-I-Mikez.com. Okay. All right. They go up to H-I-H-I-Z. No, hi-Mikez. Hi, I'm Mike. sorry. Hi, no, Mike. I'm sorry. <laughs> hi-Mikez.com. Yep. Yeah. So going up there and find out. So if you're in the area, you might be able to participate in an event. And again, now your events are not just panels and those kinds of things. You put other events on too, correct? Uh, yeah, so most of the time it's education and networking focus. So I, I bring in different community leaders to educate the community here. Uh, every once in a while, I'll do something a little more fun, which, uh, you know, the best example of that is the New York City Cannabis Film Festival that I've been running for the last few years. And so... And in that film festival, what do you do? Do you take films or documentaries on cannabis? What do you do? So we accept any film that had cannabis involved in the creation of it. So whether the actual content has anything to do with cannabis or not is less relevant. It's more about, you know, one day I had this idea that, you know, I, everyone I know goes to the movie stoned all the time. Right. Everyone I've ever met in the entertainment industry is pro cannabis, whether mm. they consume or not. And I know a lot of people who do a lot of their creative work together with cannabis. Sure. And so it occurred to me, also, that media was responsible in a large way for demonizing cannabis, that 
you know, the, the solution is closest to the problem. Right. And so here's an opportunity to create a platform to challenge the stigma, to give artists a, a chance to say, hey, I'm proud of my cannabis creativity mm -hmm. and and a way to create media that was going to be cannabis positive and and actually designed with a cannabis audience in mind. Gotcha. Because I, I find that uh, until recently, right, there was very, and, and I think there's still, the mainstream world isn't thinking about, how do I do something designed for the cannabis person? Mm -hmm. And so for me, this was just, you know, an opportunity to do something different. And, you know, in my, my ideal version of the future, this becomes a New York institution, no different from the Tribeca Film Festival, sure. 10 years out, 20 years out. So then thinking about that, we've got to give people a website that they can go up to to find out more about the Cannabis Film Festival. Tell them about that. Yeah, so that would be nyccff.com, New York City Cannabis Film Festival. I'm sure if you just punch it into Google, you'll find it. And yeah. last year, I mean, have you been doing it now for how many years? Uh, this will be my fifth festival, I believe. And it's been growing steadily every year, right? Started yeah. Started out where you get a couple hundred people, and now what are you up to? I started out, we didn't even have 100 people. Well, maybe throughout the day, 150. Okay. Last year, we had just over 500, and I imagine this year will be bigger than that. Sure. sure yeah. Sure, absolutely. Absolutely. Keep reminding you, you know, sure. my, my boss is a stoner, so sometimes mm -hmm. the stuff doesn't happen on time and clean and organized. So, <laughs> Yes. Well, you know, again, the book is called The Cannabis Business Book by Michael Zaitsev. That's right. So you can look that up right now. It's how to succeed in weed according to 50 industry leaders. I can't say thank you enough for participating in Let's Be Blunt with Martel. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Pleasure having you on board. Make sure you know what you got to do. You got to tune in to the next Let's be blowing my tail. And remember, before you go away, we have a contest going on right now where you can get a cannabis uh, buttermaker. And that buttermaker machine was donated to us by the buttermaking people. And they have said, Montel, we want you to give them away to make sure people can, you know, have a little different experience than they have. But you can figure out how to get the information you need just by clicking up on our website and find out how you can get information on how you can... See if you can qualify to win one. Which I want to enter that contest. <laughs> which which buttermaker is that? Is it's that the magical butter? The magical buttermaker. Yes. Oh, nice. Oh, one hundred seventy-five dollar value. Come on, man. More plus in some places. Yeah. And <laughs> so we're giving one away. All you have to do is, you know, you got to go up on uh, our podcast and leave a review, and then uh, your name will go into a pool, and we will select you as a possible winner. We got a lot of them to give away. I'm not going to tell you how many. We got a lot. You better jump in real quick if you want to. Uh, we, we gave away the ones on February 1st. So we got to make sure we give away some more. So go on up and, and uh, you know, qualify. Nice. I actually interviewed Garen, the CEO of Magical yes. Butter. He's in the book giving some great advice for entrepreneurs. And it's a great machine. If you don't have one, you're missing out. <laughs> there you go. That's an endorsement plus. So, okay, make sure you tune into the next. Let's be blunt. Let's be blunt.